I think that every security professional understands that compliance is not sufficient to get to a good, to a strong security posture. It's a critical element, but by itself is not sufficient. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Marzena Fuller, CISO of Cisco Cloud Security. Marzena and I talk about the unique benefits between Big Three Consulting versus a traditional CISO role. We also speak about the different elements to consider when measuring the success of your security program. How do you measure the overall success of a security program? Are maturity and compliance two sides of the same coin? Or should they be considered separate from one another? Does an investment directly correlate with the effectiveness of a cybersecurity program? Okay, Marzena, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, for those that might not know you, please, if you would, introduce yourself. Thank you for having me. My name is Marzena Fuller. I'm the CISO for Cisco's Cloud Security. I joined Cloud Security a couple months ago to lead global security organization covering everything from product security to infrastructure security operations and compliance. Prior to that, I was the CSO at SignalFX from its early stage all the way through acquisition by Splunk. And prior to that, I led security functions at few smaller cloud-native companies. So I also saw that you actually started off, I think, in, in consulting. Is that right? That is true. My first job out of college was with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I spent with them four years consulting companies on security and compliance. And that was a great experience because that really gave me an insight how some of the best-in-class companies approach security and what are some also some of the challenges that they face despite being best-in-class. How did you make the decision, because maybe there's some, some listening now that are in consulting, maybe even at PwC, that love the job, that enjoy the job, appreciate all the reasons you mentioned, but know that they're, you know, maybe not on partner track or maybe they don't want to make, you know, 10 or 20 years of this. What advice do you have to them in terms of making the decision of which way to go, you know, maybe to go a similar path like you did? That's a very good question. Being at a consulting company can be a great career choice if it aligns with individuals' personal objectives. There are certainly very attractive aspects of that, like being uh, having an opportunity to work with a number of large companies, having opportunity to large with emerging technologies. At the same time, if you are seeking for ownership of a security program that you can either build from scratch or develop and take it to the next level, then I would advise that you seek for a role at an individual company where you can have that level of ownership. Is that how, I mean, you, you said you get to work with several other 
clients and and get to know how they run their operations. Is that typically the way that you end up leaving the consulting company where you sort of you're working on your career speed dating with clients and you find one you like? Is that typically what happens? It happens for some and it's not always the way that the career develops for people who are in consulting. But definitely, when you are working for a consulting company, you do get introduced to a number of leaders within security and compliance, and you get noticed. So what advice do you have? I mean, looking back at that window of your career, or maybe even after that, what advice would you have given your younger self earlier in your career uh, when you're trying to figure things out? Maybe you had a great mentor, maybe you didn't, but if you were looking back and standing over the shoulder of, of your earlier self, what, would, what advice would you give in that period? Number one, prioritize relationships. That means developing relationships within your current uh, group, whether that be uh, the consulting company where you might be working or really any other place. Relationships with your peers, relationships with, your, with people in other groups as well. And in addition to that, develop relationships and partnerships within industry. There's a number of ways to connect with security and compliance professionals through a different networking group, through different events. And I encourage everyone to prioritize that. In addition to relationships, learn as much as possible. Technology is changing. However, some of the ways that you would uh, identify problems and address solving problems address implementing new solutions, it stays the same. So learn those tested approaches to building security program, changing security program that you see some of the companies that you might be working with are implementing. That's a very crisp answer. You've thought about this before. Uh, I like that. Do you think that, that younger people are maybe don't think as much about the relationships? You, you led with that. Is that something that, that falls between the cracks or isn't managed well? I think that awareness comes with experience. When you're early on in your career, I think oftentimes you focus on what is the next objective I need to accomplish in order to move to the next level. And quite often it's meeting certain quota, it's delivering certain projects, it's delivering on objectives you agreed upon with your direct manager. And that is very time-consuming. And that's where a lot of people put all of the energy. And mm. relationships are not prioritized. I like that. So it's energy management. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Um, some might say time management, but, but energy or effort management. I like that. I think that, um, you know, looking back on my own career, it was very much focused on the tactical and you mentioned sort of projects and other objectives. And the other thing was, is that I was also, maybe still am, but uh, certainly when I was younger, I was very heavy handed, as they would say, and very direct and maybe not as friendly as I should have been, which can hurt sometimes with the relationships piece. So I think for the younger listener, yeah, or maybe those that are newer in their career, uh, especially in cyber, those three items, which are, you know, again, relationships, uh, industry connections, and 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 learning, uh, are, are are very appropriate, very keen. Anything else you'd add to that? I mean, you you really had that mapped out well. I, I'm 
I have this feeling that you have more there. Anything else you'd share? I would expand on the comment you just made about being very direct, very heavy-handed. What I've learned with time and experience is that empathy is also very important. And being able to put yourself in others' shoes helps a lot with developing relationships and also with advancing in your career. Empathy, that's a word that's becoming, thankfully, more often and and more well-used, especially in our circles and in security. Some might say with that also uh, self-awareness. Further yet, uh, I, I am a big fan of servant leadership. So which ties all of this kind of together from a leadership perspective. Um, I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, truthfully, I, I don't think I developed any element of real, what I'll call professional empathy until probably early thirties at best. One, I didn't prioritize it. And two, I, to your point, I didn't put myself in anyone else's shoes. It was sort of about me, which allowed me to focus on things like learning and technology, but less so much on, um, the importance of relationships. So I think you covering that is <laughs> is warranted and, and quite good. Thank you for bringing that up as well. How do you gain empathy if you don't have it though? Like if you don't, if it's not a priority and you haven't practiced this, I mean, what, where do you go find empathy? It's a skill like any other skill. That's something you can learn. There's a lot of resources that teach young professionals how to develop those skills. For some people, it may be more natural, while for others, it's not. But just like with any other skills, empathy can be learned. Do you think there's sometimes with, in the States in particular, that there's a, a lack or an excess of, of empathy in the professional circles? You know, I've seen both sides of the spectrum, and it really depends on, it depends on few factors. Number one, It depends on the industry in which people work. Security industry might be different from financial industry, might be different from healthcare industry. It depends on the mentoring that individuals received throughout their career. Mm. And who was your mentor? If your mentor prioritized empathy, then you saw that's required to be successful. If your mentor didn't, then it's probably not where you would uh, focus your energy. And lastly, on your lifelong education, like where does empathy fits in uh, within your formal education during your formative years, within your family, and so forth? Yeah, no, no question. I think it's something that that is becoming more popular. Again, that emotional intelligence type thinking of what is that, it, knowing that it's important. You know, I think at InfoSec, in many cases, we start off. We may have a title, but even before we have a title, we have to work through influence more than we do authority in many cases. So you're, if you lack that, if you lack this, this toolbox, these, these tools within this toolbox uh, that you're referencing, you're, you're really probably not going to have a very good program. Um, and you're probably not going to have very many people that want to stay with you either from a program perspective. So I think people are kind of waking up to these, these things, which... It's fun for me because I now have uh, an interest in it uh, where I didn't necessarily used to. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up. Absolutely. I agree with what you just said. In order to be successful, number one, you have to 
be very good at articulating risk, security risk, and tying that to business risk. And that's where empathy also plays in. Because when you, you have to put, be able to put yourself in the shoes of the CEO, of the CFO, and other critical leaders in an organization in order to be able to communicate security risks and security asks in a way that is meaningful and impactful to them. So for the listener, we had an earlier conversation that went in and, and sort of the format of the show, if, if you haven't heard me mention this before, is kind of talking about what either irritates the guest or what do they love or what, what kind of gets them going and in either so a problem or an aspiration. And then how do we address the issue or, or get to the sort of the aspirational goal? And the element that you mentioned, one of the irritants is that there's this idea where security isn't prioritized or there's maybe even an underinvestment. But you began to talk about this quantification of risk and now this element of empathy. So, so working in, in their shoes. First off, if you would, why do you believe organizations from a business perspective don't prioritize security? Educate us on that, and then let's walk through those points together uh, for the listener. It differs across organizations. For some organizations, security has always been the priority, given the type of business in which they operate, while for others, security is becoming a newer objective and a newer priority, given the state of uh, the market and number of security events that are very heavily reported and covered in the news. It's not prioritized. There's underinvestment. Even when there is great investment, why are there still breaches? Well, that comes back to how you measure effectiveness of a security program and what is truly your objective as a, as a CIA assault. And I believe that you cannot prevent 100% of security incidents regardless of the security measures you have in place. How effective you can be, how effective your program will be is a sliding scale that is directly correlated to organizations buying, organizational support, and investment. And the objective, you know, should the objective to be, so, to be to prevent security breaches? Yes. But I would measure success of my program based on how I am improving maturity, maturity and security posture. And starting with a baseline, where is my organization at the maturity matrix? And what initiatives I'm planning to implement over the next quarter or two? And how is that going to improve or advance the level of maturity? I concur um, with 95% of what you said. 5% though, I have a question on. Mm -hmm. Is maturity, so we can have a very mature program and it can grow. And I think, it's, I think that's a, a great measure of success. However, does maturity always equate to efficacy? Meaning we can have it well-defined and we can measure it. We can be audited and get a good score. But does that necessarily mean that we are secure? It's almost the audit versus security or compliance versus security discussion. Is that the same? And do you measure those things differently? If you design your program in a way that is adequate to the specific technology that you have in place, and if that program is able to continuously evolve 
as the technology evolves, then maturity should be good measure of how effective you will be at identifying, first of all, at preventing security events, then identifying them and resolving them quickly. And I know that over time, maturity or compliance and security became two different functions and they are heavily disconnected, which is not the way it should be. Uh, They should be connected. They should be leveraging the same practices. And maturity or compliance should be a way to measure how effective your security program truly is. I completely agree. You know, you've worked, your perspective on this is very relevant. You were in consulting and then you owned compliance and now you're in security in several forms. Why is there that separation? I I felt it firsthand where you would be audited on something you knew of other issues that were being exploited daily, but the auditors wanted to focus on something else. Why is that? Historically, um, the compliance framework that were put in place would focus on the fundamental processes and it would, they would provide the baseline that you have to start with, but they would not dig into the details. So for example, a compliance program, a compliance framework might say you need to have a change management process in place. But it wouldn't specifically speak or address secure software development lifecycle and what that, how that fits into the change management. So the frameworks provided a baseline that companies then would have to take and would have to modify as needed to truly capture the important elements of a security program. And then you also have different compliance frameworks. You have SOC2, which, is, which gives you a lot of uh, flexibility to define the controls that you want to implement, which gives you also opportunity to include the important elements. From, for example, as we are talking about secure software development lifecycle, you, you are free to include all of the key elements of that process and then measure against how well you are doing uh, within the process. And that allows you to improve security posture of of the product and of the company. Other security frameworks, they are more prescriptive and they are focused on identifying some of the security defects or gaps. For example, CI is much more prescriptive and much more technical in nature. And the same would be for frameworks supporting uh, FedRAMP. I'm going to be a little maybe rotten here and, and take... The PCI example that you mentioned, there are certainly controls in there that get very prescriptive, and I think the spirit of it is is good. Uh, however, there's cases where we know where organizations have been certified. You know, they've had outside organizations in to evaluate. They've spent quite literally millions of dollars to be compliant and to get certified, and it's it's all for the best. Uh, except when it comes time to uh, still prevent the negative issues. Uh, why do we still see this sort of um, glaring gap between uh, a compliance initiative that rates should be maturity uh, and efficacy, uh, where we still have these sort of catastrophic failures uh, in the form of of breaches and other problems? Why is there that disconnect? There, there has to be one. There are a few ways of looking at that. Uh, number one, as I mentioned, compliance provides you with a framework 
that then you as a CSO should take and apply to your architecture and to the specific specific technology stack that you are running. If that is not done correctly, then there will be definitely major gaps that would result over time in having security events or security incidents. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, compliance w- meeting 100% of compliance requirements would never give you the guarantee that you're 100% protected against security events. It's a, it's a reasonable assurance. It was never intended to provide anyone with 100% of assurance. Yeah, I, 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 that answer I do agree with. What if you're the CISO listening or maybe the director of security? Maybe you don't have a CISO. And you've just finished all your PCI work and all of it on paper is good, but you are still concerned. And imagine that you're having coffee or maybe a glass of wine with that person and we're going to cover the same thing. So we just said that 100% compliance doesn't mean you're not going to have a negative event. So now what? What advice in your sort of coaching chapter in in, in reading from your book what would you recommend that that young leader look into now? Well, first of all, I think that every security professional understands that compliance is not sufficient to get to a good, to a strong security posture. It's a critical element, but by itself is not sufficient. So that person needs to evaluate the entire attack surface risk exposure, realistic, real-world attack vectors uh, against uh, their platform, against their network, and be able to communicate that to the executive team and to be able to set that expectations with the executive team that, yes, we achieved our compliance, whether that be a PCI, SOC 2, and that's a major milestone. However, that is not all that my program is intended to cover. Yeah, so let's let's pick up there because many executive, especially in executive leadership, would say, well, good job, um, we're in good shape, we've paid for this, we're in good order. How do you introduce that? So two things, um, just, just one for each, if you would. You've given this this advice, and I think that stating that your program is more than just compliance, especially to executive leadership is good. We have two tasks I want to cover. One is, is how do you explain that? Because they're expecting that you're done because you just finished your audit or your compliance, you know, it's been fulfilled. So how do you say that your, that your program is more than that? That's one. And then what's the one thing that you mentioned that you're going to add that gets more technical? Okay, so starting with uh, the first question, it is critical for a security leader to educate the executive team that compliance is one of the elements of the security program, and there is never a notion of being done. Security and security is an evolving function, and it will it has to change with changing technology. And there is no such a, there is no such thing as being hundred percent done, hundred percent secure. It's an ongoing process. I think that that's that it's it's a life cycle. It's more than just the yearly audit or the compliance initiative. But 
I mean, many times that for the uninitiated, it sounds like that that's all it is, or it could feel that way. So what's the, is part of that message. So we have a life cycle and as part of that life cycle, we always have, we're going to have these audits. We're going to have compliance, but now I'm starting to doubt my program. I'm a CISO or maybe a new security director from your perspective. What's one thing that can be added? I mean, how do we, how do I get into the next thing? So is that a pen test? Is that code review? Is that, is that tabletops? You know, what's, what's one thing to add in practice, but also into your messaging that, that begins to, to peel away at, at, at more of the, the technical and tactical risk? So one of the things that helped me tremendously uh, to communicate the current state of a security program and the current state of security within the platform is having independent, ongoing independent uh, testing of that platform. And that uh, involved bug bounty, that involved penetration testing, that involved red teaming. So it's uh, taking real-world scenarios and showing how our platform can be exploited by a malicious party. So you can take that and marry that up with results of your compliance audits and come up with an actionable plan to incorporate what is coming up from those tests into initiatives going forward. Now, the other element that is critical is the entire secure software development lifecycle and thinking how can you incorporate security in every single development process to really reduce the number of security defects or security vulnerabilities that you see at the end and shift that investment early on in the process. So you worked to educate the executive leadership to say, look, we're going to allocate resources every year in an ongoing way to to do internal or maybe external red teaming, pen testing, and and bug bounty. And then the outcome from that, the findings wrap back into probably partially into that SDLC process as, as a quality failure, right? Definitely. There is a very strong connection. And it's just like one of the data points. Ultimately, there should be more data points communicating where we should be making our next investment. But a good way is to correlate what is coming out from those external tests to what is coming out from our internal security design reviews, peer code reviews, engineering education on secure coding best practices. And ultimately, what I would expect to see is as we are increasing our investment on all of the elements of secure software development lifecycle, we should be seeing decreased number of security defects that are caught at the very end. Yes. What, what is your opinion on, I ask because I have an opinion on this, it's probably not as good as yours, but giving the developers uh, access to the security tools to use on their own. What's your opinion on that? There are a number of ways to implement that. And it, there's a decentralized model where security best practices and the framework is established by the core security team and then actual following the processes, running the tools, remediations, performing all of the key steps in the secure development lifecycle is done by 
engineering teams. That it could be either application security engineers who are embedded within each of the engineering teams, or it could be uh, actual engineers who become the security leads, if you will. And that decentralized approach, based on my experience, is the best way to scale a security program and to avoid any type of bottlenecks. At the, at the same time, that decentralized approach really supports driving the awareness and driving the increasing the importance of security throughout organization. If I'm understanding the way you frame that correctly, it sort of makes that part of the developer's um, workday. If, if they're sort of expected to utilize the tools and ideas uh, of, of security, the processes within uh, their daily development uh, and sort of, you know, code check-in, code hygiene. Is that correct? That is correct. However, you know, you need to have checks and balances and you need to have that strong leadership and strong oversight. And that stays with the core security team within my team. And are they coding to to make it secure or are they coding to, I've seen this before in my past, so I'll, I'll sort of say this, coding to basically trip up the tool, which sometimes can happen, right? To give, you, you, can, you can develop code to sort of mask an issue that causes the code evaluation platform to give it a good score when in fact it's only no longer vulnerable to that, you know, whatever that input validation is or, you know, you, you there's 101 ways to trick, to defy logic in those cases where you're, you have a good result, but you're still vulnerable. So that there's that sort of check and balance as well. That's true, but then you can address that with establishing security culture. It's a cultural change. It's not going to happen overnight. It's a journey. And you really have to think how to change the mindset, how to make security a key tenet of the company and key, one of the key priorities and key measures of success. How good is your output? And I cannot... I cannot phantom a situation where someone would be trying to cheat the process, if you will, sure. if you have that proper security culture in place. I, I completely agree. If it's, if it's made a priority, it's really part of your culture, you will not see that. You might, you might see someone attempt it maybe just once, but, but in, in areas where it's just sort of added on after the fact and it's somebody else's priority. I've seen it sadly, uh, but if yeah, if it's if it's seen as the best organization see it as a function of quality, and we all want to have quality product, quality code, uh, good experience for the customer, and if you view it in that lens, that the best organizations I've seen have viewed it in that in that with that that focal point that I've seen. And that's a great comment, and that also goes hand in hand with responsibility. So, who's ultimately responsible for security? Well, the answer is there's one CISO. However, security is everyone's responsibility. Everyone has to do their part in order to create a secure organization. Everybody has to be properly educated and everybody needs to know what is expected of them. And then once that happens, everybody has to contribute. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't have to get into, there's an element of this. We talked about things that you loved about this position and this career. We're about out of time, but I do want to briefly hit on it. You told me that one of the things that you really love about your career is that it's, it's like a game. What did you mean by that? 
that is definitely one of very attractive, that's a definitely a very attractive element of my role. It is like a game because you have always an adversary who would always try to compromise your system, either for financial gain, for reputation, for fun. And you have to be anticipating what might be coming and you have to be taking that information and then communicating in a meaningful way to executive team, but also to engineering to come up with a plan how to mitigate anticipated attacks. Yeah, being a great uh, communicator and really a translator as well. That, that is true. I mean, that goes back to the early point I made where as a CISO, you have to be able to translate security risks, which are often very technical, into business risks that are relevant to the organization and to the executive team. So I've got one final question for you that ties back uh, to the name of the show. We ask it, I believe, to every guest. To you, what does being a new CISO mean to you? It's... <laughs> I need a moment. First of all, it's not being only technical leader. It's also being a business leader who is very much in tune with the current market, with companies' customers' demands and priorities. So back in the day, CISO was responsible for identifying vulnerabilities, addressing them, and handling technical elements of overall security program. And that is not the case anymore. Today, CISO has to be able to articulate company's business strategy and has to be able to articulate where security fits in that today, where that function will fit in uh, a year or two years from now as a product that a given company has evolves. I like it. Marzena, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.